I heard someone once say, I don't treat people badly, I treat them accordingly. I believe the sentiment was intended to establish justification for their occasional rude behavior. And it is a sentiment which on face value I think would likely find approval from many. Treat others according to their actions. Treat others according to their perceived worth or value. It's interesting that we often want for people to treat us with honor and dignity, but we usually treat others according to their merit. This may be why so many people have a hard time accepting the gospel. They think that God treats us the way we treat others. If I like you, if you do something for me, then I'll treat you well. However, if you treat me poorly, then I'll just treat you in kind. We assume that God is the same way. We use the word ethics to describe the set of moral principles that governs a person's actions. The Christian ethic, the set of principles that govern our actions in the world, does not begin with an evaluation of the other person's worth. It does not begin with an evaluation of the benefit that will come from another person's actions to us. In one sense, your evaluation of them may be right. Your assessment of their merits may be correct. You may even have others who agree with your assessment of their character. However, the Christian ethic, again, the set of principles that governs our actions towards one another, always has to start with who God is first. His person, his work in our lives to give us new life, the nature of that new life, and how God expects for us to interact with the world. That is the standard of the Christian ethic. The question is, do you live like that? When the rubber meets the proverbial road, saints of God, do you believe that the standard for your actions and interactions with others starts with who God is? When you are mistreated and dishonored, do you respond in kind? Do you respond according to your feelings? Or do you seek to respond as Christ? Well, we're continuing in our series in the letter from James. Last week, we started to look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, where James is entering into a very practical discussion of how our faith ought to function. Faith works is the overall theme of the letter, and James addresses a number of specific issues as he continues to flesh out that argument through the letter. Specifically in this section, we're addressing the issue of partiality or favoritism. Favoritism has no place in the church of Jesus Christ, more particularly to evaluate someone based on some external factor within the body of Christ, to evaluate them, to view them as more valuable or less valuable, and therefore worthy of greater honor or lesser honor, is anathema to James. It is unthinkable. It is unthinkable for us to show partiality, as we looked at last week, because of the essence of our faith. Verses 1 through 4, our faith is a faith in the Lord of glory. He is the glorious one, the one whose glory far surpasses the glory of the most glorious person who ever walked the face of the earth. Jesus is the Lord of glory. Thus, there's no one greater than him, and everyone else by comparison is equally lesser. The Christian ethic begins with an honest look at who God is, who our Savior is. He is the Lord of glory. Therefore, if there's anyone who should receive glory and honor, it should be him. Moreover, we have a faith in which there is no distinction. The gospel is the great equalizer as it brings us into relationship with the Lord of glory. Thus, we are all made to be sons of God, to have peace with God, to stand in the grace of God, to know the hope of God as a result of the work of the perfect son of God, the Lord of glory. We're all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no distinction to be made among us. No value distinctions, that is. Christ is all and in all. Moreover, we have a faith in which the primary motivating factor for our actions toward one another ought to be to bless one another, to build up one another, for that is how God has designed his church. He's designed his church to be a group of called out ones, called out from the world, gifted with the spirit, enabled by his grace to build up, to encourage one another, so that the entire body of believers would grow in the faith. When you come to church, when you think of one another, your thoughts ought to involve the question, how can I be a blessing? Not first, are they going to bless me? Not first, am I going to be fed today? Or am I going to have my very specific felt need met in every way? But how can I be a blessing when I go? 
If you're not thinking that way as a Christian, then you've missed the point. You've missed the point of the church. That is the essence of our faith. It is a faith in the Lord of glory, a faith in which there's no distinction, a faith oriented toward blessing others. But there's more in this section, and James brings to our attention two other reasons why we should, again, in his words, show no partiality as we hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I gave you these two last week, but by way of reminder, in verses 5 through 7, James says that we're to show no partiality because of the preference of our Lord. And in verses 8 through 13, we're to show no partiality because of the guidance of the law. The essence of our faith, the preference of the Lord, the guidance of the law. We'll look at those last two this morning. I'll read chapter 2 for us, again, just to give us the context, and then we'll get into the rest of this section. James chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you? Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. Whereas the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word, your word which is truth. And as Jesus prayed, we pray that you would sanctify us by your truth this morning let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight for lord you are our rock and our redeemer in jesus name amen well again we are to show no partiality because of the preference of our lord and that's in verses five through seven i'll read those again listen my beloved brothers Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Again, he says, listen, my beloved brothers. I said this last time. I'll say it again. This is a personal plea. James is continuing his thought in this section and reminding them that this is not a stale, detached sermonette. This is a plea from one brother to another. This is a family meeting. There is a way that we ought to treat one another as the family of God. 
There's a way that's right for us to treat one another, and there's a way that's wrong. Listen, my brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Has not God chosen those who are poor? Now, this text is not intended to provide a full-fledged doctrine on what we call in theology election, but that is a part of James's point. God has chosen some. He doesn't elaborate on why God chose those who are poor to be rich in the faith, and I don't believe that he means this in an absolute sense, meaning James is not saying that God only chooses those who are poor. I don't think that's the point. And he doesn't even go into an explanation that suggests that the poor are, are more susceptible to the gospel. That's not the point that he's making. The reality is, as I said, similar, something similar last week, you can be poor and bitter, angry and frustrated and hateful toward God for what you lack. And you can be rich and humble, eager to give and serve those who have not. So being rich or poor is not the issue. The issue that James is drawing our attention to isn't the nature of the people. It's the nature of God. God is the one who has chosen. Election is taught throughout scripture. One of my favorite passages on election is in John 6, where Jesus himself says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, he's talking to those who are listening, that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So in that great passage on Jesus referring to himself as the bread of life, one of the so-called I am statements, he makes it very clear that the father has given some to him. There is a group of people. He doesn't say how they're identified or why. He just says that the father has given some to him and those who have given the father has given to him. They will come, not they may come or they could possibly or if they have enough faith, they're come. No, he says they will come to me and I will not cast them out. And Jesus reiterates the same truth over and over again in that passage and many other places. Paul says in Rome in Ephesians chapter one, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before the world was even made, God made this choice. He made the choice to save some. Peter calls those who are dispersed in 1 Peter chapter 1, the elect. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, are those who are elect or chosen, exiles in the dispersion. In Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, he says they're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. They are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. That just means that God chose them beforehand. Before what? We already know before the foundation of the world. Before they did anything right or wrong, God made this choice. They're chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father. They're chosen in the sanctification of the Spirit. They're sanctified by the Spirit. They're chosen to obey Jesus Christ. They're chosen to be sprinkled with his blood. This is the elect. This is the doctrine of election. Our salvation is all based on the fact of God's choice. None of us deserve to be saved. We are in the eyes of God born into sin. We're children of wrath. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. We're dead to God. We have no spiritual life before him as we're born into this world. No relationship with him. No favorable standing before him. We deserve the consequence of sin because that's what we do. That's who we are. We're sinners born into a sinful world. We deserve death. That's Romans chapter 6. And judgment afterward, Hebrews 9, 27. None of us deserve salvation. So we can never ask the question, why has God chosen to save some and not others? For that matter, we can never ask the question of why God chooses to do good to some and not others because we don't deserve good. We think we deserve good. That's why we become so angry when bad things happen, but we don't deserve good things because we're not in our nature good people. The question that we should ask is why would God do good for anyone? Why would God save any one of us dirty, rotten, stinking sinners? Why would he show mercy to anyone? Why does he show grace to anyone? It really doesn't make any sense if we believe what the Bible teaches about the nature of humanity and its sinful, rebellious state. It doesn't make any sense for him to do us any good. But he does. 
because that's who he is. I read this passage before, Titus chapter 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's who we were. That's how we were described. That's how God viewed us. But, verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he's qualifying the character of God there. He says, we were wretched sinners, wicked sinners. But God showed up. His goodness and loving kindness showed up. And because he showed up and because he is good and he is full of loving kindness, he saved us. And just to make sure that it's clear, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, he saved us. Mercy is not giving to someone what they deserve. And that's what God showed to us. He showed to us mercy. We deserve the consequence, but he chose instead to give us mercy. God has chosen to save some. He's chosen to be merciful to some. That's what salvation is. And God made a choice to be merciful to some in humanity, to bestow grace on some. Not necessarily those who are the best looking, those who are the most connected, those who are the wealthy and successful in the world. If it was up to us, we'd probably choose those kinds of people. But that's not the way God has gone about it. God has, to the contrary, and to the point of James in our letter, God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith. That's just what he chose to do. That's the reality of his choice. He has chosen generally to save those who are poor and despised in the world's eyes. And we may still wonder why, but God's not required to give us the answer why. I think that Paul does give us a glimpse into why. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, consider your calling, brothers. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the world's standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Back to our text, James says again that God has chosen those who are poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of heaven, which he promised for those who loved him. God has chosen some. And the reality is that he has generally chosen those who are poor, those who are not in the eyes of the world. The poor are those for whom God has chosen to be rich in faith, meaning Possessing the faith, holding to the faith, having a wealth that is not of this world. We often say that if we have Christ, then we have everything. For what would it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? And to the contrary, if a man's soul has been provided entrance into the abode of God, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, what more do you need? They're rich in faith, they're heirs to the kingdom the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, the people of God from antiquity have been looking forward to the coming of a savior, a king who would rule over them and who would rule over the entire world of humanity, the entire cosmos, the whole created order. And that person has been identified as Jesus Christ, the same one who James mentions earlier is the Lord of glory. I referenced Colossians chapter one before, and we talked about that passage last week where it defines Jesus as the preeminent one. He has first place in everything. There's no one higher than him, no one greater than him, no one of more importance. The poor has been given entrance into his kingdom, made heirs of his kingdom. 
James says it is a kingdom which God has promised to those who love him. In other words, not only are they rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, but they're also designated as having a love for God. We've been given the right to love God. We have been given the ability to love God. James, John says we love because he first loved us. Many people say that they love God, but do not live as if they loved God. They say they love God, but have no concept of the love of God beyond that which benefits them and that which enables them to do whatever they want. God is love, they say, and by this they mean that no one should ever tell them that their actions are wrong. God accepts me for whatever I want to do and whoever I want to be is the idea of the world's standard of God's love. But to the contrary, those who love God are heirs of the kingdom of God and are rich in faith towards God. Meaning, in the words of Hebrews, if they're rich in faith and they believe God and they believe that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If they're rich in faith, they believe that they ought to be diligently seeking God. They ought to be seeking to do things his way, not their own. Moving on in context, the point is that if God has thus blessed those who are poor to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom and to love him, who are we to disregard them? This is God's choice. Who are we to shame them by treating them with contempt? Who are we to judge them as less than valuable, less than worthy of our time, less than important in the context of the body of Christ? Those who seem the least valuable in the world's standards are those who are chosen by God. We cannot disregard, nor in James' words, judge with evil motives any of those who have been chosen by God. James goes on to elaborate on the utter foolishness of disregarding God's preference. Look at verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name to which you are called? God has chosen the poor. Again, he's generally chosen them to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, but you've dishonored them. That makes absolutely no sense, James says. They are being dishonored. They are being treated as if their lowly status in the world makes them less important in the church when God is the one who has chosen them. And again, James says further, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? See, you're giving up those for whom Christ died, those whom God has chosen in favor of those who oppress you and who drag you into court. Again, James is addressing those who favor the rich. And they tell them, you sit here in a good place in the assembly of believers. This is done presumably, again, to gain favor with them. But these are the same ones who oppress the believing remnant. James says the very people whose favor you're trying to buy by giving them this honorable position in the church are the very ones who oppress you. They take advantage of you. One author says it this way. James goes on to highlight at least one of the oppression that was occurring. They drag you into courts. The they appears for emphasis. The rich individuals that the congregation was attempting to please are the same people who persecute them. The verb drag denotes violence, whether physical or legal. James does not explain why the rich press charges against the poor, but one common motive was to gain land and property disputes. Another option envisions the rich as attempting to collect debts the poor owed, an action which would likely result in the poor being thrown into debtor's prison until they could repay. James points out the ridiculous nature of bowing to people who treat the poor in this manner, end quote. The point is that we're so concerned, often so concerned with looking for ways to gain advantage that we ignore the reality that those for whom we seek to gain advantage are the same kinds of people who take advantage of us. Yes, this happens in the realm of those who are rich. The world tends to fall over those who are rich in order to gain favor from them. But it also happens in other realms. In the realm of politics, we tend to fawn over our favorite political figure, thinking that our attention to them will lead to some form of benefit from them when they're just trying to be elected. They're just trying to get into office to have that power. More often than not. Perhaps in the workplace, we may have a superior who is rude, themselves a poor worker, one who treats and threats and bullies to get their way, one who perhaps asks us to do things that are unethical or untrue. We feel obligated to go along with their foolishness or sin in order to gain favor with them and in order to move up in the workplace while all the while blaspheming the name of Christ. 
The same could go for a teacher in school who presents us with an assignment that is offensive or otherwise goes against our values. We feel obligated to go along with the assignment to participate in the exercise in order to gain favor with that teacher or professor just so that we can get a good grade in class. The person to whom you feel obligated is among those whose actions, attitudes, and overall ethics are in direct contradiction to your own. And they are the kind of person whose actions, attitudes, and ethics inevitably lead to your harm. James is almost incredulous. Why would you bow down to those people? It goes on in verse 7. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Not only do their actions, attitudes, and general ethics contradict your own and bring harm to you, but they usually blaspheme the name of Christ. In James's day, they may have literally blasphemed the name of Christ, having rejected Jesus as Messiah themselves or generally rejected anyone who claims allegiance to Jesus. One author said it this way. He says the slander directed against Christians may have taken several different forms. The word James is James uses from which we get the word blaspheme. In a deep sense, the word connotes a violation, usually in speech of God's own person. But it can be extended to include any slander that involves God, even indirectly, such as criticism against Christian behavior by other believers or abuse heaped on believers by unbelievers over differences of morality. Because James supplies so little information, we can only speculate about the exact situation here. It may have been Gentiles profanely mocking the God whom believers claim to worship. It may have been Jews criticizing Christian claims about Jesus. Or more generally, it may have been involved unbelievers making fun of Christian morality and worship practices, end quote. In this day, there may not be a literal statement of rejection of Jesus or an outright blaspheming, blaspheming of Jesus's name, even though it is commonplace for people to take the name of Jesus in vain. They don't do that with Muhammad, but they do it with Jesus all the time. Just seems interesting to me. Why should we? But again, Many people nowadays, by their actions, attitudes, and ethics, inevitably reject them. For example, you may see or hear a news article or statement in the press about such and such a famous person, politician, actor, or actress, wealthy heir to some fortune that was built by their parents, some athlete or musician, some person who appears to be successful in the eyes of the world, making some statement about politics, morality, affirming the LGBTQ agenda, affirming in the same breath a biological male's rise to fame as a transgender woman while also ironically affirming women's rights. They make a statement about these things and make a statement affirming a woman's right to choose to murder the unborn. We're made to hear their statements, their opinions, their thoughts, and we're expected to follow them and affirm them. Every other day, I see it. I know you guys see and hear it too. Somebody says something and it becomes a front news headline because they're supposed to be someone who's in the know or they're successful in the, in the world's eyes. And we're supposed to hear what they say and agree with what they say and embrace it. The church is expected to change its positional morality, which the church has held for nearly 2,000 plus years now. All because the elites believe they, they know a better way. Meanwhile, they defame the name of Christ. They call us bigots. They call us hateful. They call us intolerant. Not because we've done anything to show that we're bigots, hateful, or intolerant, but simply because we're following in the footsteps of our Savior. We're walking in his, according to his word. We listen to their words Monday through Saturday, Saturday on television, radio, on the internet, all day long, direct from their lips, from the lips of our friends, families, quoting them, co-workers, schoolmates, we hear them, we listen to them, we tolerate them, we're influenced by them. And then on Sunday morning, we fall asleep or otherwise complain about a 45-minute sermon when we get to hear from the Lord. Christian, beware of falling to their criticism, bowing to their criticism, allowing the opinions of those who claim to be something in the eyes of the world to govern your attitudes and actions. Be careful of affirming those who blaspheme the name of Christ, 
for the sake of gaining favor while ignoring those chosen and beloved of God, those for whom Christ died. And we show no partiality because of the preference of our Lord. Finally, we show no partiality because of the guidance of the law, verses 8 through 13. If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James's discussion of the law here may seem out of place, but it makes perfect sense when you consider it. James is writing primarily to a Jewish audience, though clearly this letter was widely circulated enough. And of course, in the sovereignty of God was a part of the canon. So it's applicable to a Gentile audience as well. As he was writing to those who would have understood and had a background from the Old Testament, pulling from the law and referencing the law was a natural thing for him to do. The law was no longer binding for Jewish believers as it was under the previous covenant. That's not what James is saying here. But while the law was not binding upon them, it does still provide for us one of the clearest indications of the heart and mind of God that there is. If you want to know what God's expectations are for how we interact with and engage in life with one another, take a look at the law. Again, we read from Leviticus chapter 19 this morning. Much of what we see in Leviticus 19 were laws governing how people of Israel were to care for one another. Not only for one another, but also foreigners who lived among them. As I've said repeatedly, this ethic, this set of principles governing their actions towards one another began first with the person of God. Again, from Leviticus 19, just the opening words. God says to Moses, speak to all the congregation of Israel and you shall and and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. The reason why they were to be holy is not just so that they could, by their holiness, prove that they're religious, but they were to be holy because of their God, because of who he is. And then he qualifies this holiness. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my statutes. I am the Lord, your God. Do not turn to idols or make yourselves idols of cast metal. I am the Lord, your God. He talks about the kind of offering that they offer up there. And then he says in verse nine, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. Why? Why can't I get all of what I'm due? I put in the time and energy and effort to plant this garden and to raise these crops. Why can't I get all of it? What does he say? You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord, your God. He says, you shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely. And so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of the hired worker shall remain with you, shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Pay the man, he says. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. All of this has everything to do with how they treat one another. In the law. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. But listen, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. When a stranger sojourns in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity, 
ye shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah and a just hen. This has to do with how they do exchanges and how they exchange money and how they purchase and sell to one another. He says, you need to have just balances. I am the Lord, your God who brought you out of Egypt. We typically think of the law as a, just a set of regulations for how people were to live as individuals, the rules that they were to keep as individuals or a set of principles by which their, their worship was governed. And it, and it is that, but it's not only that the law also had everything to do with how they treated and cared for one another and how they treated and care for one another had everything to do with who God is. It starts with that the reality of his person, his character, and his work. Therefore, again, as New Testament believers, as we consider the law, we consider it in part as a guide that helps us to know the heart of God, his desires for morality, for our ethics, for how we're to live in the world for his glory, and how we're to love one another. And Jesus summarized the law in this way, Matthew chapter 22. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, and he says, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law Jesus said to him you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind this is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like it you shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets Jesus said if you want a summary statement for the law love God love your neighbor as yourself that's it do that and you will live back to the text James explains in verse eight, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Those who love their neighbor, their believing neighbor, their brother or sister in Christ, no matter whether they are rich or poor, if you love your neighbor as yourself, James says, you're doing well. That's what God has called us to do. He's called us to love indiscriminately. However, verse nine, if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Why should we show no partiality? Because the law, the royal law, the standard that God has left for us in his word and his law, which shows his heart's desire for how we interact with us, that standard is love. And showing partiality, favoring one person over another is breaking the law of God. It's rejecting his standard. And again, it's really what we're talking about here, rejecting the standard of God for us. When James uses the terminology, terminology in this section, that we are a transgressor of the law, convicted as transgressors, accountable for all of the law. He's not saying that Christians must keep the law for our salvation. That's the furthest thing from James's mind here. He's also not saying that if we fail to keep this moral law, that we'll suffer some form of purgatory or punishment before God when we get to heaven. That's not in his mind. His point is that when we break the law, even if we break it at one point, then we're rejecting the standard of God that we claim to hold. We're rejecting his standard. We're dishonoring and blaspheming the good name by which we are called. We're guilty of all of that. And James is calling us to a higher standard of living and thinking. Look at verses 10 and 11. Whoever keeps the whole law, but it fails at one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. James's point is that we may think that we're good people. We may pay our tithes. We may show up on Sunday morning for service. We may sing loudly all of the songs that we like on Sunday morning. But if we fail at one point, if we show partiality with evil motives in our hearts, we're still transgressors of the law. Again, if you keep the whole law but fail at one point, you're held accountable for all. It only takes failing to keep one point of the law to make your law break. The law is a whole. It is a unit. And the expectation is that all of it is kept. This is the standard. And if you break one point of the standard, then you've broken all of it. And this is particularly important as we consider how we often compare ourselves to one another. And we shouldn't do that, but we usually do. We see someone else in the body of Christ who struggles with alcoholism, and we may say, oh, look at that fool. I can't believe they're doing that to our body. But we ourselves are avid smokers or doing something else to maybe we eat too much. We may see someone in the body of Christ who struggles with some kind of sexual sin, pornography, some other sexual immorality, and we think that person has a big problem. They need to get their life together, and they certainly do, but we struggle with other things. We struggle with covetousness. We struggle with anger. 
That's still sin. We see someone who lies and we think, how can a Christian lie like that? But we ourselves are selfish. We're selfish with our time, with our treasures, our talents, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We only serve when it's convenient. We only give after we've gotten for ourselves, or perhaps we're thieves. We may not rob banks or art galleries, but we still time from our employers at work. When we should be working, we're doing other things. Or maybe we just take things that don't belong to us home. James says that the same one who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you still transgress the law. Even if you don't commit those big ticket, glaringly obvious, out in the open for all to see kind of sins, the sins of your heart are still dishonoring God. You may think to yourself, oh, well, I've never physically committed adultery or physically murdered someone. Well, we spoke last week about motives, and even in Leviticus 19, it mentions this. Jesus makes clear in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, that adultery starts in the heart. And he says even in that passage that anger, I mean, that, that murder is akin to anger. So even if you don't physically murder someone, but you're angry with them in your heart, it's the same thing. It's still sin. It's so much easier to identify problems and the sins in others while we ignore the sins in our own hearts. But I think if we take James's words to heart here, we have to recognize and understand that no one is better than the other. We still have a problem. We're still a lawbreaker. We're still dishonoring the will and intent of God. If we keep every aspect of failing one point, doesn't matter if you fail in one point that's different from somebody else. Moving on, look at verses 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. These last two verses are James's final thoughts on the issue. Again, faith works. He says in verse 12, so speak and so act. That's what he's driving at. The tenses of these words indicate a consistent, regular action. This is not perfection, but the overall character of one's life. This is the way your life ought to generally be characterized. And again, James is addressing this significant issue in a very practical way. How we speak and act with regard to one another on a regular basis is the issue. We can claim to have all the faith we want, but if we never show our faith by speaking and acting in a particular way, then as he'll say later, that faith is dead. So speak and so act in a way that he's just mentioned. And as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, a couple of weeks back when we talked about James's understanding of pure and undefiled religion, I made the point that we would have to give an account for every word that we say out of our mouths. The reality of our accountability before God is throughout this letter. James wants for believers to know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No, we will not receive the same judgment as the unbelieving world. They will face judgment, but so shall we we will have to give an account for everything that we say and do in the body before God. I referenced 2 Corinthians chapter 5 before, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. Paul says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Paul is very clear. He says, we must all stand before the judgment seat. Not they, not certain people, we must all. We don't often talk about the fear of the Lord in the church. But Paul seems to suggest in that passage that he was compelled forward in his ministry by the fear of the Lord. That's why he continued and pressed on. That day will come. Again, it will not be a day of condemnation, but it will be a day when a believer will be made to stand before God and to give an account for all of what he has said and done, he or she has said and done in the body. The reality of that judgment is what James is pointing to here. We will be judged by the law of liberty. Again, he qualifies the concept of the law here. This is the law of liberty. It's a law that makes free. It is the law of the gospel, the gospel which brings liberty. The gospel is a law instituted in accord with the love of God. The gospel, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, is a demonstration of the love of God for us. And the gospel is a law which makes people new, which grants new life. And that new life is granted that is granted by the gospel is a new love, new life governed by the love of God. John says it this way in first John chapter four, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love in this. The love of God was made manifest among us. 
that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We love to talk about the love of God. We love to worship God for his love, to praise God for his love, and we should. But the implication of God's love for us is that we ought to love one another. We have to. There's no way around it. We can't say that we know the love of God and not love one another in the way that God loved us. The law of liberty is a law of love. Those who have been set free by the law of liberty ought to love. Those who have been set free by the law of liberty will then be judged by that standard of love that God has given to us. Verse 13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Here's a question for you, Christian. Have you shown mercy in your love to your brothers and sisters in Christ? I defined mercy earlier as withholding that which we truly deserve. Perhaps you have judged another person and found them wanting. Perhaps you've interacted with another person, found them lacking in some area or another, and determined that what they deserve is not good but retribution. They deserve consequences, and you may be right. But is it your job to make such judgments? James will ask later in this letter if it is our aim to be a judge of the law. When we speak evil of one another, he'll say in that text, then we become judges of the law. When we show favoritism, we are judging one another with evil motives and thus become judges of the law, which commands us that we not show favoritism, but rather show mercy. We're not to be judges of the law, but rather followers of the standard of the law. The standard of the law is love. It is mercy. The judgment of God upon us who are in Christ is mercy. The judgment of God for us is that we love one another. And again, judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. We fall so far short of this verse, but it is at the same time frightening, convicting, and encouraging. It's frightening because judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. The implication is clear. If you have shown no mercy, you will receive no mercy. The judgment seat of Christ is coming. We'll all stand before it. Will we stand before it as those who have shown mercy or as those who have shown no mercy? That's the question. For this reason, it is convicting. It is a reminder that we ought to be merciful. God is merciful. God has shown mercy to us. And it truly doesn't matter what anyone else has done to you. There's no greater sin There's no than to break the law of a holy, righteous, almighty God. And even if you've only broken one part of the law, even if you think it's just a small, little, teeny, tiny bit of the law, you're still a lawbreaker. And your sin is still infinitely offensive to him. Therefore, your sin still deserves infinite punishment. But God doesn't respond to you according to what you deserve. He responds to you according to his mercy. Again, Titus chapter 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Again, he saved us according to his mercy. How can we fail to do likewise for others? And even now, when we still break the law of God today, whether we sin in our hearts or whether we sin with our hands, we still break his law. We still disregard his standard. And yet he continues to show his mercy. His mercies are new. What? Every morning. Again, this is where the proverbial rubber meets the road. The Christian ethic is governed by the reality of who God is and his standard for us, not the merit of another person. One author said that a failure to show mercy to those in need calls into question whether there has been any true act of repentance in the face of God's mercy. He says, consistent faith is the core of James's teaching. Faith in God in no way causes God to be merciful. Rather, faith is made possible because God is merciful. Faith trusts in this merciful God. Only faith must conduct itself consistently with God's mercy. Trusting faith is merciful faith. In order to be genuine, the believer's faith must include mercy. Believer's sins are always before them, and yet mercy has triumphed over sin. I think it's safe to say that a person who lacks mercy or is devoid of mercy knows nothing of the mercy of God and salvation. If you have no understanding of your need for mercy from God, no inclination to show mercy to others, you probably don't belong to Christ. The flip side of that is in the midst of some great turmoil, 
some great offense committed to us, we may not immediately consider mercy because we all struggle with sin and the effects of sin. We all become angry, frustrated from time to time. But the truth of this passage is that every true believer will eventually hear the call of God from his word to be merciful. A believer will feel the conviction to respond, not according to the merit of the offending party, but rather according to the mercy and grace of God. I said this verse was frightening, convicting, and encouraging. It's encouraging knowing that even though all of these things are true, there is a judgment for us. We do fail to keep the law of God, his holy standard. Even though we as his people have been made new by faith in Christ and ought to show mercy, we do not always show mercy. Even though that is true, James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. In a final analysis, our confidence is not in our ability to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and talk our way out of all the foolish choices we've made in life, the foolish things we've said, the times we've shown favoritism or any other ways we failed to live up to the standard of the moral law of God. But our confidence is that on that day, the merciful God will still show us mercy because that is who he is. And again, if that's true in his character toward us, it ought to be true in our character towards one another. Well, James is exhorting us in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, to show no partiality to one another in the body of Christ. He's exhorting his brothers and sisters to take care with how they treat one another, that our care for one another ought not to be based on such arbitrary standards as our perception of merit or our perception of gain from one another. Show no partiality because of the essence of our faith. We have a faith in the Lord of glory. Show no partiality because of the preference of our Lord. The Lord has chosen those who are in the world's eyes, weak and wounded, sick and sore, so the glory would come to him and not from us for our salvation. Show no partiality because of the guidance of the law. The law reveals the will of God, the nature of God, his expectations for his people, and his expectations are clear. We are to love one another as we love ourselves. We are to love one another in accord with the mercy of God. To show partiality is simply inconsistent with the nature of true faith. The world treats others according to their merit. To refrain from treating someone according to what they deserve is the epitome of mercy. And it is the life that Christ calls his people to. True faith works. And in this case, true faith is merciful. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for not giving to us what we what we deserve what we by our thoughts by our words by our actions deserve from you is your judgment it is the penalty for sin and yet you have not responded to us you do not act towards us in accord with what we deserve but you act towards us in accord with your mercy in accord with your grace before the throne of God above, we have a strong and perfect plea. We have a great high priest whose name is love. He ever lives and pleads for us. And he ever lives and pleads for us in accord with your mercy and grace. Make us likewise in Christ's name. Amen.